Welcome to Simple Cyber, Cybersecurity Made Simple, the podcast of the Global Cyber Center by SOSA, the official cyber center of New York City. Here with us on our first episode today is William Altman. William is a senior innovation analyst with us at SOSA, where he produces data-driven research on emerging technologies, industries, and geographies with a focus on cybersecurity. William also works with corporations and governments to develop and execute open innovation strategies that lead to buying, partnering, and investing in the right startups and the right new technologies. William's work has been uh, published and featured on the Wall Street Journal, on Forbes, on CNN, on the New York Times. And before SOSA, William worked as an industry intelligence analyst at CB Insights, covering cybersecurity for four years. He has worked in the Middle East and North Africa, where he conducted research on entrepreneurship for three years and has a degree from Denison University and a master's degree from Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Happy listening. William, welcome to Simple Cyber, the Global Cyber Center's podcast explaining cybersecurity in simple terms. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Michael. Uh, It's great to be here. Thank you for being with us and thank you for being the first guest on the show. Many more. To yeah, play. I'm excited to uh, excited to you know see what we can do with all the digital content on the GCC website. Like as you know, we've been experimenting with videos and written content, and podcasts are just one more way that we can get our message out there and help grow this uh, community of cybersecurity practitioners uh, globally, but especially here in New York City. Phenomenal, and I'm going to ask you to hit it off with the way I usually ask people to hit it off, and that is tell us, myself and the listeners, your story in two minutes or under. Great. So um, I'm 30 years old. I'm from the Midwest in the U.S., from Indiana. Um, I went to college in Ohio. Uh, I studied Middle East affairs and political science and international relations there. Um, I got my master's degree from the Monterey Institute or the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, uh, and I studied um, international relations there as well with Arab, focus on Arabic. I lived in the Middle East and North Africa for three and a half years, uh, focused there on um, working with a venture capital firm doing um, research and analysis on entrepreneurship ecosystems and the development of tech startups in the region. Um, then I, after that, I, I worked here in uh, New York City for a company called CB Insights for four years. Um, and we built a software platform that is a private market intelligence tool for corporate innovation professionals to look at the markets that they're interested in and uh, make buy partner or invest decisions uh, with data instead of their gut. Uh, and I focused solely on the cybersecurity industry there. So I was able to spend a lot of time assessing trends and companies and uh, looking at the market from sort of a high level view and really understanding all the players and, and different intricacies that are involved uh, in this space. And then that really led me uh, down a path to get more interested in the investment side of things. Um, I uh, helped start a company called 17 Asset Management, was an investment firm uh, focused on investing in the UN Sustainable Goals for uh, Development. 
And then um, after that, I uh, came here to Sosa to help uh, lead up our corporate innovation team uh, based here in New York City, uh, run out of the Global Cyber Center. And that's uh, how I'm here with you today. Fantastic. So how many companies do you believe you've seen in the past five years in cybersecurities? That's a good question. Um, when I look at the the whole market, uh, I look at the PitchBook database and I look at the CB Insights database. Well, not anymore, but I have looked at it uh, and a few others. And there's anywhere between, I would say, seven to 8,000 private cybersecurity companies, uh, ranging from your, you know, group of one to two people who just started up all the way to your, you know, multi hundred million dollar uh, company, but still private. And then there's also, you know, there's probably a um, hundred, you know, really well established public cybersecurity companies in the world. So I've, I've seen the whole array of companies uh, go from very early stage one person all the way to to ice or to uh, an IPO. So I've seen it all. And as someone who's seen it all, um, explain to us in simple terms what is cybersecurity. It's a great question. I think uh, oftentimes people simplify it and they say it's really about protecting an enterprise's uh, digital assets and resources, either from uh, tampering and misuse uh, or negligence, but also from sort of malicious uh, actors as well. Like that's the, that's the traditional definition of cybersecurity. But I believe that cybersecurity is more about human rights today than it ever has been. And what I mean is that the world is becoming increasingly digital. Everything we do is logged and tracked and that data is sensitive and it can be used to re-identify us, um, potentially exploit us. And I think cybersecurity is rapidly becoming more about how do you defend individuals and their digital rights, um, freedom from exploitation online, uh, data privacy solutions. Um, you know, how can you ensure that as the world becomes more digital, it also becomes more safe? And that to me is cybersecurity. So the immediate next question would be if the individuals, you know, are, and their assets are, is what being protected and cybersecurity is the means or defines the means, who is trying to hurt those individuals who are the bad guys or the bad gals? It's a good question. I think today we've got a mix of, you know, your, I guess what I would call your lone wolf attacker, um, you know, someone who's basically either self-taught and moderately skilled enough to acquire the different tools that are necessary to hack any something but you know they they aren't you know writing their own malware essentially this is that takes a lot of uh time and skill to really develop instead they're just buying these tools online for free on the dark web mostly deploying them at will so that's sort of like your lone wolf attacker out there kind of just wreaking havoc for the hell of it um it's you know can be fairly lucrative and potentially low risk for those individuals i think you've got um a bigger issue when you talk about organized crime and organized criminal you know enterprises that would previously you know either do 
your traditional criminal operations on the ground in physical with a physical presence, but now they've really realized that doing things like PBX phone hacking, uh, credit card scamming, anything online and digital is really the way to go. And I think as they learned more about this, they realized that ransomware was really the, the tool of choice for them. So I think you see a lot of organized criminal organizations pivoting to different digital attacks. But I think the one that really perplexes us today and, and, and persists as sort of that thorn in the side of digital rights and, and human rights online is the nation state hacking. And you've got some of the most sophisticated uh, hacking organizations in the world operating outside the boundaries of national or international law, oftentimes under the, the uh, I guess, under the guise of national security or homeland security. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, um, this can result in a lot of bad actors um, out there in the wild. Like, for example, we saw Sony get hacked by the North Korean government. Um, You know, this is just one example of a nation state hack on a private company in the U.S. So I think those three levels of attacker are really what we're facing today. So you're saying the lone wolf, the organized crime, and the nation state. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So I recently read... uh, what I found out to be a good introductory uh, book to cybersecurity. Um, it's called Cybersecurity Program Development for Business. Mm-hmm. It sounds terrible, but it's mm-hmm. uh, actually quite interesting. And the audiobook is quite listenable. Um, and he divides it in a similar way. He says basically three major players um, ethical hackers, so people who attack out of a certain ideology, it says, uh, for-profit hackers, right? Who have something to gain, be it uh, individuals or, or organized crime or anything in between, and the nation states. So uh, maybe one more player along that um, in that route. And um, you know, I think now with I don't want to go too deep into it, but uh, we're in April 2020. The COVID-19 situation is all around us. And I think some nations, for good reason, in my humble opinion, are activating some uh, cyber tools to actually track citizens. And there is always the risk of that slippery slope, you know, that would eventually might jeopardize uh, individual rights and liberties and freedoms. But uh, again, I don't want to... I'm just putting it out there. You can feel free to to, to say something about it or not. Uh, I actually, I would love to. I mean, this is something that's top of mind for me right now. Um, I've had the opportunity to speak with several CEOs of companies that are right in this space right now. The space that I'm referring to, what you just spoke about, this idea of essentially using really granular level uh, information about people to track their whereabouts, their interactions with people, to try to understand essentially uh, how the pandemic is spreading and how we can control it. But I think the slippery slope that you talk about really comes into play when we talk about what happens after the crisis. Uh, Do these sort of, I mean, I'll use the word draconian, although I don't think they're out of pure malicious intent. I think oftentimes governments are just really trying to protect their people. But 
they could still be construed as draconian. For example, we know that um, I think in in South Korea, you know, the government's developed a mobile location tracking app that when people uh, who are, you know, supposed to be quarantining are found to not be quarantining, they could get fined immediately, potentially, right? Like this is right. pretty invasive stuff. I think it it's shown to be effective at at stemming the spread of the virus in that country but what happens after the virus is gone do those rules uh and technologies stay in place do they go away and do we only use them in a time of great need or do they become the norm and that's very slippery and unproven um but what i what i also want to say is that on the flip side it has the potential to be one of the most exciting um, developments in cybersecurity today. And I think that's around large scale uh, privacy preserving data analysis uh, solutions. So I know a company called Infer, one called Mostly AI, another called Shard Secure, uh, another one called Envale. I think there's <clears throat> another called Hazy. Uh, there's a few out there right now um, that are really focused on this idea of how can we conduct uh, analysis on data. And, and preserve large data sets for insights while preserving privacy at the same time. And there's a number of different techniques out there to do this. It's a very exciting space. I think uh, governments around the world that are trying to better understand the spread of the, the pandemic by using granular identity and location data, they need to start working with some of these companies if they're going to prevent um, the slippery slope that we just talked about. Yep, a hundred percent. And when it comes to you know to cybersecurity trends going on today, other than you know the COVID nineteen, which is obviously very much alive and and present in all of our lives, let's say a couple of months ago, if I would have asked you the same question, what would be kind of the the top of mind trends um, in your view in cybersecurity? Hmm. There are so many. There are so many trends in this industry unfolding. I mean, you have all your different threats from uh, credential theft, ransomware, uh, polymorphic malware that defeats our traditional antivirus signature protocols. These are things that have only come online in the last few years. And I would have said any number of those things, really. Um, I think the one that is most top of mind for me today um, it's really the nation state hacking, honestly. I think, uh, especially with the leak of, you know, basically like nuclear arsenal caliber cyber tools from the yep. NSA in recent years and the pro proliferation of those tools on the dark web, I, I think that has opened up such a tremendous. Uh, need for new tools and solutions to combat these threats that we're actually seeing the growth of the overall market as a result. That, that to me is something I'm continuously looking at and following and trying to get a better handle on. So wh where is the industry expanding beyond, you know, enterprise software and, and what does that actually mean for, you know, for people or for companies, for investors, for, for us? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it brings me back to this idea of what is cybersecurity becoming, and it's becoming about human rights and digital rights for people and how we can protect uh, our own individual data and potentially own it. 
Um, I think that's how the industry is changing the most. I think what's what's interesting is that you'll see a shift first and foremost in the investors. Uh, what I mean is that venture capitalists have their own clients, these large pools of capital that they use to then reinvest in the companies that they pick, right? Um, those clients have their own mandates. And oftentimes, you know, they they tend to be security focused uh investors and that limits the pool of capital that venture capitalists can go after to then fund the industry but i think as we realize that this industry is less about enterprise it's still about enterprise cybersecurity but as it becomes more about human rights and digital rights you're going to see a lot of firms that would otherwise not put their money in cybersecurity actually decide that this is worth it. For example, you'll see large pension funds that were investing in things like the UN Sustainable Development Goals realize that cyber is an underlying component to those goals, and they will start funding the industry at unprecedented amounts. And I think that's when we're really going to see this uh, we'll call it a Cambrian explosion of new ideas and interesting technologies in the space. And I think that's, to me, the next wave of expansion. I think it's a very interesting point you're raising. That is that, you know, companies, corporates, sovereign funds, whoever it is, they proactively kind of pour money into where their pain point is. And, you know, I've been in the industry for a few years as well, and I don't recall a situation similar to this. I'm trying to think of a, no, I, I can't think of, of you know, a, a group, an, like a group of investors, right? Saying, oh, this is a tr real immediate now pain point. We're going to pour money into that through, you know, funds and funds of funds and sovereign funds and whatever it is. We're just going to pour dry market, uh, dry powder on the market and hope solutions would stem from that. Um, I remember the opposite happening. I remember, you know, BlackRock getting pressure to not invest in like e-cigarettes or in whatever, in strip clubs. But um, that's a very interesting point. So the Well, I think yeah, you yeah. hit it right there. It's that they traditionally, they, meaning like large asset managers, the biggest pools of capital in the world, they traditionally were not pressured to achieve any social impact with their dollars. And I think today the world's looking at these, these groups and they're saying, look, like you are essentially the wheels of the the capital markets. And if you don't turn those wheels in the right direction, the rest of us are screwed. And we're seeing that now really, really take place with climate change. And a lot of these organizations are funding climate or looking to fund climate change solutions because they know this is a pressing need. Um, all it's going to take is, is another worldwide ransomware attack on critical infrastructure operations, and we'll see a loss of life and loss of economic progress. And, and I think it's going to start to become apparent that this problem around digital security is, is an existential threat to um, global progress. And we'll start to see some of that money come into the space uh, with that underlying thesis that they want to prevent that from happening in the future. Yeah, 100%. You see physical, actual like money investment into these. It's like It's almost like a direct investment. It's not a pure direct investment because you still need, need a lot of know-how to kind of sort things out. Um, 
super interesting. It also can show you why, you know, even amidst this coronavirus, you know, craziness that's going on around, there are cyber companies who are raising money. Uh, I think Checkmarks, like an Israeli company, got acquired for over a billion dollars uh, a couple of weeks ago. So this is still, you know, still happening. Yeah. I mean, that's another good point. Like we've seen companies across the private markets um, that didn't have a lot of cash runway and had thin margins just lay off staff, uh, close shop, you know, amidst a period in which they thought they were going to be growing. Cybersecurity, though, it seems is not just a nice to have, and this is proving it, that it's a need. It's a corporate need that's not going away. And in times of extreme vulnerability, like the, around the coronavirus, we actually see that need increase. And I think investors are, are proving that idea. And I haven't pulled the data yet, but this is a good idea. We should look. We should look at how many companies have been funded in the last 90 days in cyber versus maybe another industry like travel tech or um, luxury goods or something like that I, I have a feeling that cyber is not slowing down yeah yeah speaking of uh, private markets so what are you watching right now what what do you what do you believe will stay on top what will be the next big the big thing um okay so the way i the way i think about it is you could look at it from a technology perspective and and what is the the next great tech that's going to come out and and i'll talk about that in just a second but first i want to talk about kind of how do you look at the private markets and find the next big thing what do you look for right and in cyber specifically and mm -hmm. to me I, i think israel is is the pristine example in the world of of what to look for in, in cyber innovation. And what I mean is that Israel has done a great job of uh, facilitating these public-private partnerships to allow um, the most talented individuals that have created new novel cybersecurity uh, technologies and tactics in the government to actually uh, create private companies, right? And that's really where your latest and greatest technologies come from. They come mm -hmm. from people who have been on the front lines fighting the bad guys. And then they, you know, have the resources and the capability to launch a company after the fact. And so when I look around the private markets and I want to find the most exciting new companies, I look for the investment firms that are the most linked into these public institutions, most notably the defense institutions. So you've got a group like Team 8, Um, very much tied into Unit 8200 in Israel, obviously one of the premier and most uh, successful cybersecurity um, groups on the planet. I think in the U.S., you've got a number of groups that are just starting to emulate that model. We've got mm -hmm. a, a group um, called Data Tribe uh, and, and affiliation with Allegis Cyber, and they're you know basically taking analysts uh, out of the NSA and, and equipping them to launch companies with you know the technologies and tactics that they learn in the NSA. I, I think we're seeing that happen in Israel and in the U.S. and potentially in other places. So identifying those firms that have access to those people and those technologies is key to understanding the next big. Thing in cyber. Now, what am I seeing from that analysis? Now, I, I think this uh, this idea of, of data privacy and data analytics that preserve privacy is something very interesting. Uh, we see a lot of 
really interesting stuff happening still today on the uh, behavioral analytics and anomaly detection side. Um, I think this and all can all kind of fit under the umbrella of the effect of artificial intelligence technology, the lower cost of computing, uh, the you know ability for, of cloud computing to create new software applications that can scale. It, these things are all really exciting elements or developments that contribute to uh, the growth of cybersecurity. I think um, you know the next next big thing is quantum computing. And we are still seven to 10 years off of really understanding the effect of this technology on the cybersecurity industry and the digital world sort of writ large. Um, I think that we're going to see a lot of um, groups and companies claiming to sell quantum safe technologies, just the same way we saw AI boosted cyber when it first came out, um, you know, but we'll get through that period of marketing and hype, and we'll actually start to see some companies that are truly generating um, quantum safe solutions. And that's the next big thing. Yeah, we recently had uh, a workshop with seven Canadian startup firms, uh, cybersecurity startup firms. And actually, one of them was busy writing the protocols for the day when quantum computing actually kicks in uh, and they've been doing it for the past 10 years or so with you know with the government with agencies because they basically say look the day that quantum is commercial you know there is no more you know cyber defense there is no cybersecurity as we know it today because you know right. the encrypting and deciphering just doesn't look the same true i think that company was called isara I-S-A-R-A corporation yep. and they're doing quantum safe crypto like protocols. I think that's interesting. I think there are some companies out there that are, that are approaching this from a different, a different lens. Um, they're, they're actually trying to find ways to secure data without using encryption. So one potential solution is called sharding um, where they split the data up into very small pieces. They, you know, put in some, um, disturbance if you will and and create masks for that data they distribute it. it it's essentially really difficult for a hacker to piece it back together and make sense of it right you have to have the the right uh, information and and uh access to do that right it, it doesn't rely on encryption in theory it's quantum safe but time will tell yeah exactly reminds me of y2k <laughs> a little bit, right? Like this yeah. pending uh, doom that, you know, we have to prepare for. And maybe when it gets here, um, hopefully it's just not even a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I hope that would be the case and not the other way around because then we're really yeah. in a different mess. Yeah. <laughs> True. Okay. So we were talking a bit about the markets. We were talking a bit about how to kind of look and kind of search for these opportunities. Um, are there areas of the market that you feel are currently, you know, have potential, but are not are either underfunded or underrepresented something that we should keep an eye on. Maybe we have some VCs listening in. Yeah, look, I I don't I may not tell a VC in this space anything they don't already know, but I do know that 
we need to start investing more in uh, hardware level IoT security. Um, this isn't a secret, but it's definitely a fact. Like our rules and regulations around the construction and the design of Internet of Things devices are not set up to protect us. They're set up to mass produce and sell, you know, cheap goods that are internet connected, right? Um, that's going to hurt us in the long run. We've already seen instances where hackers can take advantage of large networks of unsecured devices, redeploy them for DDoS attacks and other, you know, sort of malicious acts, right? This is only right. going to get worse. Um, and if we don't have the proper rules and regulations on manufacturers, it's really going to be up to the private sector to innovate new tools and 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 ways of protecting us so one area i see a lot of interesting um developments i don't see a lot of companies or a lot of deals going into this is in firmware security this is sort of the um the the software within a device that's embedded that controls the hardware functionality mm -hmm. of the device and it's it's vulnerable essentially to hacking um, and so I, I think like just sort of little little intricacies around IoT security like that uh, and a few others, I think that's an underfunded space that we need to start doubling down on. I think supply chain security is another big issue. Um, it's sort of related to this idea of, of IoT hardware and firmware security. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think... Um, Bloomberg ran like this big story like a couple years ago around firmware hacking the Chinese government and downstream and upstream supply chains being compromised and we see some companies like a group called CyberGRX I think leading in this space where groups can sort of assess that third party security element but uh, again I think there's a lot more room to grow there. 100%. So let's shift for for a second and I don't I know we don't have uh, a lot more time but let's shift for a second to the you know to the corporations themselves okay and the first thing I would ask is you know how do you, does a CISO does a chief information security officer relate or can explain the necessity and the crucialness of what he does to a group of people who have no idea what cybersecurity, myself included, by the way, what cybersecurity really is on the deeper level. So how can mm -hmm. he be an effective communicator or, you know, or, 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 or to, you know, to carry a certain banner if almost nobody around him understands what he's actually doing? This is a problem I think that anyone in a very technical field is going to face when they're having to fight for budget up next to, say, a marketing department, right, or something like that. Something that people really get and then something people don't get, but they kind of know it's important, right? I think the key here is to make the case that cybersecurity is about corporate survival. And I don't just mean it's about preventing a hack. Um, we can see that a lot of really big organizations have suffered major breaches and they kind of still go on living. Look at Marriott, look at Equifax, right? Those right. companies' stock prices barely took a hit because of these major hacks. So that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is today, 
what we'll call innovation or this idea that you have to basically go out into the world and buy partner and invest in companies to stay alive. Uh, you can't just do it all in house anymore. You kind of have to know where that next guy in his garage is coming from. That's a huge part of corporate survival today. And if you're going to have an effective innovation, corporate innovation strategy in your company, you need proper digital security in order to do that. Here's why you can't, have a consistent pipeline of innovations that you roll out and and um, kind of like serve your customers with on a regular basis if you aren't confident that those new systems and tools every time you update them are secure. You just can't do it. It's a huge business risk, right? And so if you have proper cybersecurity in place that communicates with your innovation department, you actually can can win in that space. I think that's one argument that CISOs haven't been making in the past that they need to start making. The other element of this is that if you are if you are in a cybersecurity company, for example, and you're thinking about innovating, uh, or even if you're just like a CISO at a, a non-cyber company, for example, like a, a CPG retail company, mm-hmm. attackers are updating their tactics and uh, you know, sort of countering our defenses every day at a rapid and unprecedented pace. If you're going to keep up with this challenge, you have to have a consistent pipeline of innovations for you to draw new tools, new perspectives, and and new insights on the industry. And I think these two things are something that CISOs can kind of draw on to make the case that um, they're not just a nice to have, but really a critical function inside the organization directly linked to corporate survival. All right. Um, So I have last two questions for you. Okay. So the first question is, you know, what would the average Joe or the plain Jane, what, what can they do to kind of stay on top of, you know, cybersecurity and what thought leaders, publications, you know, books, magazines, websites, can they follow to kind of keep themselves informed? Not the CISOs, not the top, you know, analysts, not the who's and who, but people like me, you know, I have a, an okay understanding of cyber, but maybe someone even who's a newcomer to the field. How can sure. they stay informed? It's a great question. I think we've seen a lot of news publications launch dedicated cyber teams. Like we have the Wall Street Journal has a whole security reporting team now. Um, You know, that's an interesting source. I personally, I read Wired Magazine and their security Mm -hmm. section every single day. Like, I don't think there's a better source out there for breaking news around cyber and sort of like after the fact triage analysis of like hacks and things that have happened and gone down, right? Um, Wired Security is awesome. I think uh, there's a few podcasts I like. One is called CyberWire. That's a great one, but it's pretty technical. Um, You know, you can kind of use it as a way to sort of understand what you don't know, I think, Mm -hmm. is kind of how I I use it. Uh, You know, I'll listen to it and I'll hear, wow, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. I need to go do some research on what, uh, uh, you know, um, what does it really mean to have managed detection and response, right, for example. Um, I also like one called Darknet Diaries. 
this I would highly recommend. It really opens your mind to the idea that this stuff's happening every day all over the world in some of the biggest uh, governments and, you know, halls of power and, and all the way down to, like I said, that lone wolf guy, like kind of in his in his bedroom or whatever, you know, it's just kind of like a great podcast to sort of shed light on some of the less talked about elements of the industry. So I like those. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think, you know, also the data platforms themselves, not everyone has access to PitchBook or CB insights or the, any of the others, but I think there's really no substitute for keeping a pulse on early stage deals. Um, look at what people are investing in, in seed and series A rounds and try to understand those companies. And if you do that enough, you can find patterns, you can start to understand trends, you can start to forecast the future of the industry. Very good. Last question. And then I have a surprise for you. So the question is, uh, what did I not ask that I should have asked? So I think something you, you could have asked me is, um, you know, as I've been in the industry and I've seen a number of developments like hacks happen and read about them and, and kept up to date on them, like what's the craziest thing I've seen or like the most outlandish hack I've seen and, and what's the takeaway from it? That's something I think people don't ask a lot about. Um, but I have one in mind and it's one that I haven't spoken about a lot, but um, I think new information has come to light in recent years that has really made the case to make the case that this is like one of the most interesting uh, and telling hacks ever done. And it's called Operation Socialist. And that was the hmm. code name. The operation was given by uh, the British Signals and Communications Agency, the GCHQ. Um, and it was an operation that successfully breached the infrastructure of the Belgian telecommunications company, Belgicom. And this happened between 2010 and 2013, essentially. This whole thing took place. And what it really underscored was this problem of nation state hacking and what to do when two nations decide to sort of under the table work together to spy on their own citizens. Um, and I think the the story there was, you know, the interest that I had in the story was compounded by the fact that, you know, there was sort of an inkling that this was happening. And then you had the Edward Snowden papers get released and there was a proof then. Uh, and then you had reporting, amazing reporting done by a group called The Intercept um, that, you know, sort of like cracked the whole story open. And now we can really see what happened and how it happened and why it happened. I think this is uh, something that I would encourage anyone who's interested in understanding more about cutting edge cyber hacking and why it happens and the trade-off between ethics and um, a value for governments. I think this is really interesting. Very cool. Um, and to we're approaching the end of this uh, episode. And to wrap it up, I would like to play a little game with you. Great. And so the game goes like this. I would ask you a question. The game is called Only Three Words. And it goes like this. I would ask you a question. For example, William, what are your three favorite colors and you would think and not say anything until you're ready and then you would say in only three words what are your three favorite colors for example blue purple black <laughs> 
perfect. If you would ask me, blue, red, white, very patriotic. <laughs> <laughs> so, William, in only three words, what are the fundaments, the elements of your character? Okay, the three the three words that that came to mind here. I, I like to think that I I pursue discipline. So I'll say the word discipline, um, empathy, um, and ambition. Discipline, empathy, and ambition. Mm -hmm. care, to, care to explain? Um, I discipline. I, I think. Um, I, I practice a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and one of the mantras in that uh, sport and that defense uh, martial art is that, you know, we are what we repeatedly do. It's essentially a science of repetition and I firmly believe in that. Now, I'm not a robot. I obviously like take breaks and have moments of laziness like everyone else, but I like to think that I constantly revisit the idea of wanting to incorporate more discipline in my life. Um, not in a way where I'm like trying to beat myself up over it, but trying to make it a part of what I do naturally. Um, I think it's just something I strive for uh, constantly. And then empathy, I think I get that from my mom. I just really, I, I like to think that I have a big heart and I want everyone to feel included when I'm around. I, I always go for the underdog. If someone's being left out, like they're on my team, you know? Um, and then, uh, what was the third word that I said? <laughs> Empathy, discipline. Oh, ambition. There we go. Yeah. So I, I said uh, discipline, empathy, and ambition. And the reason I said ambition is just because, um, uh, again, I, I think this comes from my father. He was a, a business owner and, um, you know, worked his entire life to make my life better, my mom's life better, my sister's life better. And I think that really instilled a lot in me to just keep going and trying to build more for myself and for people around me. Like I, I, uh, I want to, I want to be in this industry, but, um, I want to do big things and I have a lot of good, you know, plans about how to build things and, and, you know, get groups of people around me motivated. And I think that's just part of my character. Very nice. I like it a lot. So, William, with that, any final words to our uh, listeners? Um, well, Michael, I just want to say thanks again for having me. Like, we obviously work together at SOSA, and this is our first podcast. Um, but I, the reason I think we did this is just to showcase that uh, we have a deep bench of expertise in this company when it comes to cyber. We have deep roots in the Israeli ecosystem that I mentioned earlier is just top notch in the world for this stuff. We now have, have a, a deep entrenched presence in New York City, which is a rising cyber ecosystem with some of the biggest clients for these types of products and services on the planet. So we're just really well positioned to offer insights, advice, uh, bespoke you know, tech scouting services for large corporates and governments. And I would encourage anyone who listened to this podcast just to reach out to us if you're at all interested in, in anything that I spoke about. We're happy to talk to you about it. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. William, with that, thank you very much. And I look forward to our next episode. Yeah, so do I. Thanks, Michael. <laughs>